You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Friend of the show, Michael Hutchins, joins me today to discuss entry points into the Criterion Channel's permanent library. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey, a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection in Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at therobertaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is friend of the show, Michael Hutchins. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And uh, as I said in our Patreon banter, uh, thank you for being the first guest as I begin to experiment and uh, try out new formats uh, for the the show and uh, kind of play around a little bit here. Well, it's wonderful to be here, Josh. I'm glad you're able to uh, come up with this new concept, and I'm happy to be the first person that you try it out on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, how have things been going for you, Michael? Uh, how are How is the world of uh, film viewing and the Criterion Channel going for you right now? Going pretty well. I was lucky this month where I watched almost uh, – there was 122 new films this month, <laughs> if you can believe <laughs> it. Uh, uh, this was the biggest month so far that they brought back films that had, they had previously mm. uh, yeah. almost doubled the amount. I think like almost 40 films. That's because they had that big bundle by Shirley Clark that they brought back. Mm. But uh, the last the last time uh, the highest number of new films – I mean returning films was like 17 or 18. So you can yeah. imagine I was – so, you know, I have September in the bag, put it that way. <laughs> I, I think that out of the 122 films, I had saw 65 of them. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty so, good, a pretty good ratio was, there. It was pretty good, yeah. No, It's normally not nowhere near 50%. No, normally I've seen anywhere between 30 and 40%. Nice, nice. <laughs> well – one of the reasons that there are a couple of reasons why I wanted to have you on and, and we'll get to that a little later in the show. But um, one of the reasons was, you know, back in the Criterion Channel Club a few months ago, you sent out a poll and were checking in with people to see where they get their information on Criterion Channel titles and where they get their information about new titles for the Criterion Channel, uh, what's what's coming to the channel. Could you talk maybe a little bit about that? You know, what what inspired you to uh, kind of do this survey okay. and uh, yeah. and and learn and and get gather that information? I know you are all the right. keeper of stats <laughs> for uh, all things Criterion in our right. in our Facebook circles, but um, what what was the impetus behind that? I think I'm just a nosy person. <laughs> no, I, I really wanted to to see, you know, in the group itself, what we could do. Not that I'm an uh, administrator or moderator, but I just wanted to see how I could help the rest of the group. It's, it's grown pretty good. Uh, it, it's kind of slowed down recently, I think. So I was thinking, well, what can we do to to see where people get their information and how can we 
direct them towards maybe other areas of, mm-hmm. of getting uh, what the schedule is, what films are coming, what films are staying, what films are actually uh, going to be there permanently, because there are sometimes questions of people wondering about when certain films are going to leave. And and, and so, uh, of course, I always direct them towards my letterbox list of the permanent streaming library. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, I got some interesting results in the poll. I, I created maybe, I think, 10 or 15 options and um, the the top choice uh, and well surprised in one way in that the majority of the people actually get their information about what's on the channel from the Criterion Channel Club on Facebook you know mm-hmm. so that that shows that that what we're doing in the club is important to a lot of people so I was glad to get those results. That's 177 people responded and gave that as their choice. Oh, and they also had options of of, of choosing more than one. You know, it, it's not like they ha- I, they had to choose who, which one was their primary source for information. And so, uh, and then the second one, which did surprise me, uh, with 120 votes, was uh, they got the information from the Explore page or the opening page mm. of the app, because I uh, often I've heard you know, I guess. Just stories, you know, but that people would somewhat, somewhat complain about what's on that front page. And I've always tried to make them understand that that's just like any streaming services, films or, or catalog. They couldn't put everything on the same on the front page. Yeah. And so the curators there at, at the Criterion Channel have divided the films up into, um, I think, maybe about 20 categories now. It seems like every week they're adding a new category. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they added one the other day called Hollywood Hits. But uh, a lot of people get the information from that page. I guess they go and they scroll down and they, they will look at different categories. And and then uh, I think there's normally about maybe 15, 20 actual films shown within each category. But you can choose to go further. And I think some of them is up to 40 and 50 selections once you choose that category. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I, I can see now where people would use that as one of their primary sources. you know. Yeah. And then the next one, this one did surprise me mainly because I don't use it, and maybe I should, and that is the emails that Criterion sends out. Not just mm. the Criterion channel, but the Criterion collection, uh, the company, sends out emails. Mm-hmm. And I, and so ever since I got the results from this poll, I say pay, started paying more attention to the to those emails. And it does provide a lot of information. You know, anybody out there, they, they need to um, subscribe to their email list because almost like two or three times a week, they will let you know what's being highlighted for that week, uh, different collections, different directors and, and groupings of films. And 93 people responded saying that that was their, their primary source for information. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty it's it's really interesting to see, again, where people end up getting getting that information. I know I I tend to go to the the criterion criterion's current to get that post yeah uh the the monthly uh post or i'll go to the criterion cast monthly post once the press release has gone out exactly and those Um, those are my two those were my high on my list and um it got 58 responses that people mm -hmm. did actually go to that page on the website each month yeah and i i can see that 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 was an important um important source there Mm -hmm. but i but i think you're right i think that that People often get to those pages or get to the that information, the press release, or uh, those things through the Criterion Channel Club. I think that the 
the channel club often, you know, there are people who just aren't as keyed into some of those other resources. Right. And it is through recommendations, through word of mouth, through the the social component. Uh, and I think that that to me speaks volumes about the the community that yeah. the the channel club is trying to be. And, you know, it's not that it's always perfect. It's not that it always works as flawlessly as we'd like it to. But I think that's lovely that uh, the social aspect has has been a, a real driving force in how people get their information. Yeah, it's great. Considering a group that large, more than 13,000 members. Uh, there's very little strife. There's some, some very good conversations going on there. Yeah. And and you have some very uh, open minds who's, who's willing to, you know, to listen and, and, and take in recommendations. And so, yeah, I, I think the club itself is a valuable source for, for subscribers to the channel. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Thanks for doing this work, Michael. I think this oh, is oh, really, it's really, you know, these are always really interesting little tidbits, right? Uh, oh, yes. That, that help us get little insights into um, uh, just the way people are engaging with the Criterion channel. Yeah, right? yeah it shows the importance or prominence of, of social media in yeah. people's everyday lives. You know? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, part of this new format that uh, we're going to try out is uh, instead of the long a breathless list of new and expiring titles, uh, which sometimes makes these episodes uh, a little unwieldy and a little less timely because of uh, my current health condition and the the sometimes the the delays that happen in uh, when we record and when I'm able to get things edited. We're going to try something new this month, and uh, we're really just going to have a, a little conversation about uh, a brief conversation about the new and expiring titles and some of the things that have uh, stood out for us rather than uh, kind of g digging deep into the the lineup. Michael, uh, you know, September, like you said, was maybe the, the biggest month uh, of the Criterion channel ever. Is that right? Yeah, uh, the number of, of films that were added in September was the biggest so far in its history, yeah. Uh, but again, yeah. th there was a lot of, you know, returning films, but, but that's great for people who missed them when they were first there, you know. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see that they're they're continuing to do this uh, kind of going back to films and revisiting films and repackaging these films, right? Oh, yes. Great. It's great yeah. to, to see that. Yeah. And, I, you know, we're seeing some cool some cool sets, right? Like the, oh, yeah. the New York stories. I mean, that's a cool... Uh, bundle. I, I love that we're getting some bundles that we never. I don't. I don't know that any of us would have thought that that was what was coming this month, right? Well, it was around September 11th, so I suppose that may have been why they they wanted to kind of put a spotlight on New York, you know. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, but the fact that it's so big, and I think someone jokingly said you can throw a rock and not and hit a film on on the Criterion Channel that was uh made in New York, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as you've been kind of going through your list of films and trying to catch up on things, what are some of the things that have really stood out for you? I was really looking forward to the bundle that they were putting together of Jia um, Janka uh, because mm -hmm. I had seen he, – he's released nine films in his maybe 21 years of making films. Mm -hmm. I think his first film was in 97, so yeah, 20, 24 years now. His first film was already on the channel. In fact, 
uh, so far, four of those nine films are actually part of the Janus films, and so mm. which makes them part of the permanent library. So you don't have to rush to see those because they're going to be there. But uh, one in particular I was looking forward to, and I was glad to learn that it was a uh, Janus-like uh, label because you know everyone was saying this is the best film by Gia. And mm. so I, um, and that was platform, you know, mm. and I think it's really what he came into his own. I, I had seen, uh, already seen maybe five of those films, which means there was four films left for me to see, or three that was on the channel, because there's, there's one film that has not yet been on the channel, and that's Ash is the Purest White, which was his mm-hmm. most recent film. But um, uh, besides platform, I had not seen Touch of Sin or 24 City, and so far I've saw all of them except for Touch of Sin. I'm holding off on that for later this month. But uh, surprisingly, 24 City, I think, was probably the one that impressed me the most, mm-hmm. even though my favorite film by uh, G.I. is still live from 2006. But uh, 24 City was kind of experiment in a way, but I think maybe he was learning from, from people like uh, Abbas Karastami mm-hmm. in that he was able to create a documentary with recreated interviews by actors, you know, in this case, 24 City, it was a, a new complex that was being built in China where they had destroyed uh, this factory. Almost the whole town was based around this factory and the land was very valuable. And so, and so you know, certain entities came in there and said, we need this land. And the company was, was willing to sell it. And so it showed the impact on the lives of the people who who actually worked at that factory and some of them were actual interviews and then Mm. some of the interviews were actually recreated by actors and it was the funniest thing whenever uh, Joan Chen portrays a young woman who worked at the factory and had kind of grew up there and her they I forgot what they called her like Little Flower that was the name of a film that starred the actress Joan Chen and the real life person looked enough like Joan Chen that everybody called her Little Flower. Mm-hmm. And now here's Joan Chen reading or uh, performing her words in this interview as as working as a worker at the factory. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it boggles the mind when you think, when you go back and forth and think all the, you know, the connections, you know. But um, yeah. I, I, I highly recommend that, yeah. Oh, that's neat. That's neat. The only one of his films so far that I've seen is Ash's Purest White. I saw that when it came to our local art house cinema uh, a few years ago and was really really compelled by it but i i haven't don't have enough of a context for his uh his filmography so i'm excited to to dig into the history and in the 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 body of work there um well you got a treat in store for you there josh yeah yeah, what are some of the things that really that really stand out to you about well, uh, his his work, and what is it that really grips you in the the filmmaking? I think it's because he reflects as growing up within a society that was changing so fast. Mm-hmm. This was after the uh, the revolution, and they were loosening certain certain um, areas of the culture, and they were mm-hmm. allowing people certain freedoms. And and he just was right in the middle of that, like growing up in the 80s. In fact, one of the films, uh, Platform, is basically about that, him him being a, a young performer who's traveling around the country and um, doing these uh, stage performances for, for these people living in small towns in China. And that's really, you know, when you think about most of his films is about, you know, China, the, the people, and, and the changes of the last 50 years in, in, in mm. that country. And, yeah. Uh, and then I just like, you know, 
his innovative choices in um, and how they approach his subject, you would think that he would kind of because his subjects pretty much uh, is about the same thing that that they would become repetitive, but they're not. You know, each mm. each film is very quite unique. In fact, Mountains May Depart actually takes place in three different time periods, and one of them is in the future. So, mm. so that that's a, a nice approach. And he has this actress called. Uh, Zhao Tao, I think that's yeah. how you pronounce her name. She was in almost all of his films except for his first one, and so it's nice to see the, see these uh, these familiar faces that that appear every now and then in his in his films. It's almost like she's a muse, and she's the one he goes to whenever he's want, wanting someone to play these parts he's writing. Yeah, that's great. That's really neat. Yeah, I think you know one of the ones that has really stood out to me. I think you know there's so much within that New York. New York stories bundle and you know I could pick so many of them but I think one of the ones that I'm just really I was just blown away by is the clock Mm -hmm. that one is such an absolutely lovely and heartbreaking and gorgeous romance that Mm -hmm. I I just did not I didn't expect uh It is such a, a light, but there, there's this effortlessness to it. It's not light, but there's this um, there's this effortlessness to it. And it was the the film that really that fully sold me on Judy Garland. I hadn't seen a lot of Judy Garland's work uh, when I had first seen it, and to see just how how much she really digs into the role. I mean, she is incredible and um i hadn't seen much of vicente minnelli's uh work prior to this either so i hadn't at least not that i knew uh knew of right you know i wasn't really paying attention to uh to to who was directing the musicals when i was Mm -hmm. watching them as a kid Mm -hmm. right and there's just you know his his camera work is is gorgeous and you know this is a a really just lovely romance that um, just swept me away in a way that I did not expect and, and feels, feels really honest and really, mm-hmm. really heartbreaking and uh, yet hopeful. And uh, it's just, it's, it's one that I, I wholeheartedly recommend people catch uh, while it's here. Oh yes. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful film. It's one that I had already saw before. And so um uh, but normally at the end of a month or the, uh, whenever it's announced that it will leave, I would usually do some rewatches of those I had not watched you know, recently, yeah. and that would be on my list. The thing about Manelli is that people try to pin him down, you know, like making yeah. sentimental films. And all, I mean, but you look at his his career. I mean, he can't do it. He, something like Some Come Running and, oh, my, uh, The Bad and the Beautiful. I mean, yeah. those are yeah. very cynical, you know. And then, and then you have something sweet like the clock, or or uh, meet me in St. Louis. Yeah, so, yeah. It's 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 he's a master filmmaker, and it's no no reason you should pin him down or have these preconceived ideas about what he has done. You know. Yeah, I think this is if you know if you haven't. I mean, obviously, you know, with the the MGM musical bundles from a couple of years ago, that was mm-hmm. one that you know he was all over that one. Oh yes. But uh, if you haven't seen much of his work this is a or if you've only seen the musicals you know this is this is such a a lovely little film you know for fans of the you know before trilogy i think this is a a film that honestly has a has a lot of in common with those films as Mm -hmm. well 
there's such a, a a humanity to it that really it was really moving that you know again uh it's a wartime film that i think um uh, you you can't help but be moved by the the plight of these two young young people and the way that the community really comes together for them yeah it's a great film and i think that that with Minnelli, uh, you have to see the time period he was making films, almost at the height of the studio system, and mm-hmm. he was using uh, every trick in the book. I mean, he he could pull, you know, pull the strings and and do anything yeah. really with that studio yeah. behind him. I think most of his films were from MGM, but maybe later on, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think for 20 years he was the MGM, and, and he took full advantage of the studio system. Yeah, that's great. Uh, is there anything else that you, that has really stood out to you as you're uh, working your way through stuff? Oh, yes. I um, had never seen the film called Grass or subtitled A Nation's Battle for Life. Mm. Silent Film is one of my kind of go-to now mm-hmm. in the last maybe five or six years. It's a well, it's not really a genre, but it's, it's a school of film that I had not really paid attention to as I was growing up. And I realized so, such great work was being done there. And so I, I've been concentrating on it for the last few years. And this is one I'd never seen. It came out in 1925. It was directed, well, the credit doesn't really cap direction. Back then, um, they had not kind of quantified or qualified what ex, what's considered the roles that someone take when they're making a film. And so they, they say uh, the film was recorded for the screen by Marion C. Cooper, Ernest B. Schultzak, and Marguerite Harrison. Mm-hmm. But what I find is most books, and even Criterion themselves, only give credit to Cooper and Schultzak mm-hmm. and not Harrison, who um, she did have a, a, a short uh, kind of on screen presence in the film. But my understanding is she produced half the film. Uh, most of the funding was 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 from the money she had made, and, and stories is, is that she was a spy, you know, and was like kicked out of Russia. So she has a mm-hmm. fascinating story on herself. But this was a story about this uh, tribal people, and it's called a nation's battle for life. But but you know, in 1922 when it was made, there was there was no nation as far as you know geographical boundaries. Uh, people in these areas were just just groups of people so it's more probably should be called a people's battle for life mm-hmm. but it shows uh shows this group uh, their leader um of 50,000 human beings traveling over 300 miles to a new area because their life is through their animals and their animals need new pastures and so um every every few seasons or so whenever they've depleted the grasses in the lands where they're at they go to another location so it shows the movement of, of these 50,000 people and a half million animals, you know, you know, horses, cows, sheep, goats. But but I think um, it's just it was just a fascinating film to watch, you know. And, um, of course, everybody knows Cooper and Shosek because they later made King Kong, of course, mm-hmm. you know, the, the great one of the first great action films. And then we also um, right now I learned recently that it was owned by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Uh, it was somehow it was donated to them through ever who owned it, you know, but Milestone got the theatrical rights, but it's not available on DVD except maybe an out of print one from uh, Image Entertainment from 2004. But the print that they're showing on the channel looks pretty amazing when you consider mm-hmm. the time period. It's got some great tinting, film tinting. Oh, and then just, you know, the action of the film itself, extraordinary. It's not like um, I know they were inspired by Nanook of the North. And, but I don't think they've ever been accused of, of setting up certain scenes like Flaherty was 
in Nanook. Mm. Uh, of course, you know, how can you control the movement of 50,000 people, you know? <laughs> but uh, but there's some remarkable scenes. There's uh, this one scene where they, they reach this, I mean, extraordinarily wide river, and they have to cross it with their animals. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. I don't want to give anything away, but it's uh, it's that scene is worth the price of the film itself. Wow. So it's, so watch it. It's called it's called Grass or, or a Grass and Nations Battle for Life. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's only about an hour long too, so it's you know it's yeah. a quick watch. Yeah, and I, I think you know it's it's so fascinating to see how some of those early filmmakers were working in so many different modes, right? Oh, yeah. uh, between you know documentary and uh, you know the big budget spectacle of King Kong <laughs> and the the lower budget you know, most dangerous game, you know, I mean, they were bouncing all over the place and doing some really, really interesting work. And, you know, it, it strikes me that so many filmmakers today are often both audiences and funders and studios want to pigeonhole them into uh, doing the same type of work over and over again. Yeah. And people will complain that a, a more art house filmmaker is going to go and work for a uh, a big a big studio to to do a a project that's going to give them funding so they can do other other smaller work as well. Sure, sure. And I think that uh, you know it's it's lovely to see even in the early days of cinema this this type of this type of setup has been just a part of the the system. Yeah, they were inventing an art. I mean, yeah. it's only been about 20 years before the uh, previously uh, full-length feature films were being made. So in 20 years, yeah. can you imagine comparing a film from 2001 to 2021? Uh, yeah. How much of uh, an advance in the art in that 20 years between 1905 and 1925? It just boggles the mind, you know. Yeah. And and then you know, and not having these restrictions as you as as you spoke of, uh, these filmmakers were able to to go out there and just uh, come up with something new. Come up with something different. You know. Yeah. If they had the money, and that's that's where Marguerite came in. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think also, you know, one of the films that's being highlighted this month that is phenomenal is uh, Julie Taymor's adaptation of Titus. Oh yes. Uh, or Titus Andronicus. I think that is a just an absolutely gorgeous and stunning work. Uh, I first saw it. Uh, in theaters when it when it came out um, we have a Cinerama movie theater in Seattle and uh, it played on the big Cinerama screen which you know is with all the blood and gore and gorgeous <laughs> imagery was uh, shocking but uh, just an overwhelming and uh, just stunning experience uh, that I it shook me to my core, and I have seen it multiple times over the years, and have listened to Tamar talk about her process, and you know having it on the channel is a great excuse to rewatch it, and mm-hmm. you know I'm consistently struck by the the bold color choices, by the ways that she will alternate the the more symbolic and heightened violence that happens where it's, it's very, 
ethereal and almost magical and then bring it back down into this very gritty and gory and very earthy violence that is just stomach churning Mm -hmm. and that uh you know as, as she has said in interviews she never wanted audiences to get numb and desensitized to the violence and she never wanted never wanted to see it as just this kind of lovely bit of movement on screen but you always she always wanted you to feel off off put and you never know what's coming next and uh, i love the way the film explores uh, the different modes of violence and power and privilege and i it's just this it's an exceptional film and i think it it wrestles with some of the more problematic aspects of Shakespeare's script and it's to me is just a masterclass in how you take a work of literature from you know hundreds of years ago and and really translate it into the modern day and make it relevant and and have it actually say something that has meaning to today and isn't just a museum piece so yeah, i think make it make it cinematic you know that's that's, yeah. that's film you just don't put a camera in front of the stage and film yeah. a shakespeare play and that's what she did you know yeah that's I, what she I, didn't I, do she, yes. she actually made it into a visual and a visceral experience you know yeah yeah it's extremely just it's 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 meaty and the performances are all so fantastic just oh, across yes. the board. I mean, I think everybody in this is uh, exceptional. Yeah. I think uh, this is one of the great, great Shakespeare adaptations. So um, yeah. Cause yeah. if ever said, you know, you shouldn't make a film or you can't make a film cause it's not possible to make a film of Titus Andronicus. And she said, you know, hold my beer. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so she did it and it was great. I saw it in the theater also. And then, the moment it came out on DVD, I bought it. It was a big double yep. disc set, yep. you know. And uh, I'm not sure if it's out on, on Blu-ray yet. It was but, released uh, by Twilight Time okay. on uh, disc. And oh, yeah, yeah. Who knows how, uh, where, how much where is available, it will yeah. go now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, this is this is one to to definitely... I think it's one that is is really worth seeking out. I think it's one that has also been, been neglected. Yeah. Uh, it's been forgotten about. Yeah, I think uh, she she's had these uh, critical uh, you know approaches to her haven't been as kind as I think she would have been if she had she'd been a, a male. I'll come yeah. out and say it if she'd been a man, because yeah. uh, a film like Across the Universe, I just adored that. I saw it in the theater, and yeah. just sat there. You know, my love for the Beatles was you know just uh, reinforced so much more by just yeah. seeing that film and how she's able to take those songs and imagine them as uh, you know visual stories you know so yeah yeah Yeah, i think i think that she she is a i think she has a really really unique visual style and uh yeah i'm i'm very eager to continue to see what she does and how she continues to tell these stories so yeah yeah michael as we look at what is leaving you know there's it it doesn't seem like there's quite as many films that are leaving this month as this, there there normally are. Am I correct in that? Yes, uh, yes, you are. It, it is pretty low. This has been a very a very uh, small month as far as leaving films, but you know some some important films are leaving too. So yeah, I was really really happy like for myself that you know I've either seen a lot of the films or. Uh, 
I have discs of quite a few of the films. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's nice that, you know, I don't feel quite the same pressure that I would often feel, even though I'm not trying to rush through them all right now. And I know you're caught up with everything, but, uh, what are what are some things that, as you look over this list, what are standouts to you? What are things that, if you hadn't seen them all, what are things that you would have been trying to to catch up on or to to make sure you would have caught by the end of the month? Okay, let's start with well, there are two bundles that are leaving it, and they're they're very important films. And um, they're both by gay filmmakers. The first one is Marlon Riggs. I, I highly recommend it. You know, that would be the number one set. If, if people ask me what's leaving this month, what should I see? If mm. they've not, if you've not seen the eight films by Marlon Riggs, do that in the next ten days. You know, mm. but then um, then there's the films by Jenny Olson. Uh, her her five films are going, and especially her two feature films, The Joy of Life and The Royal Road. Extraordinary uh, use of her style of filmmaking really shines through there. Where she she puts her camera down. She shoots a live shot, you know, of a location, and then she she talks, but she doesn't talk about what what you're seeing. She she's it's almost they're like essay films or film mm-hmm. essays, and that and that and and some of them are personal, some of them are um she goes into history, uh, something like uh, the joy of life is about you know, San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge, you know. And those who chose not to accept the joy of life, you know, yeah, and uh, and took advantage of that bridge. But yeah, th- those are the two ones. I, I know that the Marlon Riggs films have been released, all of them, in a box by Criter- Criterion, and that's great. I've got that box. I, that was one of my first purchases the month of it, of it was re- re- released. But those who, who just aren't into both the physical media and 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 depend mainly on the channel, jump on the Marlon Riggs films because mm-hmm. um, th- there's a great series there. So do it no that's good those are good good recommendations i know that i will at the very least be catching the short films by jenny olsen this month mm-hmm. um i know that uh those are not available anywhere else mm-hmm. i can watch i believe the jenny olsen films on canopy so i can i know i can at least have those on my in my queue Great. to uh, get to those but i know that those some of those short films are just going to be really hard to see otherwise well definitely. both of those uh bundles were added a year ago and yeah. unlike most bundles that stay either six or uh, three months or six months uh those both were on the channel for a year so mm-hmm. you had a long chance to see them those who, who are going to miss them you know yep. but yeah uh and, and that tends to be a certain uh directors films will stay on the channel longer than let's say the studio films yeah and so um and a lot of a lot of times those films aren't available anywhere else like you said the uh those shorts by jenny olsen yep short films i think especially if they're part of bundles those are ones that i would highly recommend people do their best to jump on uh you know this episode may not be out before the end of the month or might be out just towards the end of the month Mm -hmm. um once the the final the final edit's done um so you know it might be too late on some of this well if if they have canopy and you're saying both of her features are on there yeah then they should get they should should watch it on canopy yeah yeah but but i i think this just does go to show that for for some of these filmmakers short films are are though those things that i i highly recommend people get on those short films while they're on the channel you know whether they're in the expiring 
Q or not. Um, oh, yeah. Because I think short films are really hard to, to find sometimes. Yeah. I think the thing that really stood out as I was going over this list, the thing that has really stood out to me in the f- films that are leaving were the uh, Isabel Sandoval films. Mm-hmm. Those were real revelations to me. She has a really, really clear voice. And even in these early works, as she is finding her voice and is finding her her filmmaking language and style, uh, she is still coming up with some really strong stories and some really strong visual grammar and visual language. And uh, the two films on the channel, you see a filmmaker learning working with actors who this may be their first film, this may be an early entry for them. So there is an earnestness and an eagerness there, but there is still a a real strength to the, the visuals. There's a strength to the storytelling. It's really compelling to see how she is playing with genre and form to explore all of these different stories in some really, really interesting ways. And I really, really enjoyed all of the films that I have seen of hers. And I am really eager to see more of her work as she uh, continues to work as a filmmaker. I think these are two very strong beginning films. Yeah, I can't wait to see more of what she does. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, just seeing the jump from Senorita Apparition, uh, that was only yeah. one year between those two films. And my goodness, uh, going from... I, I would say low budget. I, I, I suspect it's probably no budget film like Senorita, uh, and then being able to make something so you know, I mean, it, it's just it was just a beautiful work. Apparition. If that's the one film you have to see of the of the three features she's made, that would be my favorite. And it's of course on the channel for just a little bit more. But yeah, yeah. If it's yeah. available somewhere else, look for it. Yeah. What are the other films that have really kind of stood out to you, yeah. the, out of the ones that are leaving? There's uh, a set of films made by a Chinese female director. Her name is Liu Jiayin. I first heard her because of the Mark Cousins documentary, Women Make Film. And luckily, the channel put her two films on there, Oxhide and then Oxhide 2, films from the, um, 2005 and 2009. And uh, they were just lovely films. You know, an- another kind of film where you're not certain how much of it was staged. Is it fiction? Are these characters she's created? Is this a document of her family? But it's just extraordinary to watch. You know, and you know, you get to know her and her family, her mother and father. Uh, they're like a working class family in a typical Chinese town. And um, you get to learn about the father's difficulties. He owns a leather shop. Of course, that's where it gets the name, Oxhide. And it shows his, uh, he's having financial difficulties, you know, keeping the shop afloat but the second film i think is is just even better it's mm-hmm. and and the way it's filmed of course it's it's all about you know preparing dumplings if you can believe that <laughs> a film and the cat the, the how she moves her camera uh how she focuses on that table because it starts off you see the father uh, beating out a piece of 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 ox hide to create you know like a leather bag or something but it quickly he moves that away he clears the table and he starts bringing his bowls with the flour and the water and he starts creating these dumplings uh, during all this is conversation going on and then there's a cut there's an edit maybe 15 minutes later and you mm-hmm. you and then you're looking from another angle of the table 
and and throughout the film she's moving her camera showing you this preparation and and then also you have the conversation between the mother and the father and her mm. because she's also there in the in both of her films and i had to thank mark cousins for that because i'm sure I've, i mean i'm not sure if his use of that prompted criterion to license it for the channel but i'm i'm glad it's there yeah. i'm glad it was there yeah yeah i kept hearing when the the films because i believe the they were added several months ago yeah. uh, even before the mark cousins documentary was was on the channel maybe right when the the mark cousins documentary was airing on tcm but i remember people talking about how difficult some of these films were to find i think oxide yeah. 2 was on ovid um at the time but oxide uh, the first oxide was not and so yeah i think you know it's it's really fantastic that they're getting these films and that they have had them on the channel for for such a, a length of time well i just love that that cousins really introduced me to some filmmakers even if they were hard to find yeah. i was able to find some so that was that was great that's neat that's really great i think this is one that i continue to recommend and that i i still i still really love and just recently i watched some of the supplements that were included with the film and that is persepolis I think the the film is such a gorgeous work of animation and the channel has some really great has a really great feature on the making of Persepolis as well. Whoa, and, I didn't know that. And, I, I I passed by that because I have the I have it on I have it on DVD and somehow maybe it's one of the supplements that was on the DVD. It, it might yeah. be on the yeah. it might be on the DVD. But it's probably a maybe a twenty minute, thirty minute uh, documentary on the the way they translated it to uh, film, and it is a really exquisite behind the scenes look at how painstaking the process was for bringing this to life and the the work and the detail and how much love and care and attention they had to put into bringing this this story to the screen and it made me really appreciate this this really gorgeous film all the more and again you know hand-drawn animation is you know in a in a world where there's some great computer animation but uh, we have so much of it that uh, this type of really lovingly crafted hand-drawn animation is so unique and so wonderful and when you see the process that they use to make it 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 just is it's staggering so mm -hmm. i i highly recommend uh, the film and watching some of those supplements on how how it was brought to life i second that recommendation and i will have to yeah. check out those supplements so yeah yes yes michael thank you so much for uh, talking a little bit about some of the films from the new and expiring titles for September that stood out to you. I think this was a, a fun little conversation. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, this was nice. Well, Michael, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on for this new kind of shift in format is early this month or the end of last month, you really worked on creating a new letterboxed list that was a beginner's guide to the Criterion Channel's permanent library. And uh, I know you have created many different lists for the Criterion Channel in many different varieties and forms. 
I'm curious to know what what was it that prompted you to to create this particular list? I think to get my own head around what the actual permanent library constitutes and mm. and what I would want other persons who have who have never or new persons to it, how they would see the channel and, and its permanent library. And, you know, I'm a list maker. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so what I did, I said, well, I'm going to choose 100 films. And I, I, I try to cover so many genres, you know, silence, comedies, dramas, foreign films, documentaries, and, you know, all the way from early films to recent films. I try to pick up, you know, different film movements, you know, like French New Wave or the, or the, or the Czech films. And um, also try to get some, you know, representation in there of certain marginalized filmmakers. And um, I did a pretty, you know, I, I thought I did a pretty good job. And then I, um, just as I had posted, I got a, a comment from Matthew Gastar, our, our, our mutual friend. Yeah. And he reminded me he'd made a similar list a few years ago. In fact, <laughs> I do, I, you know, after he said that, uh, if you had been standing beside me, you'd have seen how red I was because uh, I, it finally struck me. Yeah, he did do this and he did 100 films. You know, he, he calls it How Do I Criterion and 100 Films to Watch on the Channel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, but, you know, not surprisingly, there's probably 90 films duplicate between our two lists. <laughs> so between us, I think we did a pretty good job. There are some areas, I think, uh, after looking at, at his list, I could see I should have chosen less French films, less Japanese films, because yeah. that seems to be the, the canon, the criterion canon. You know, I probably needed to go more towards, like, Southeast Asia or mm. uh, or or African films, That the few that are there. But sometimes that's hard because uh, I don't want this to be a list of, what I consider to be the best films on the channel, you know, mm-hmm. not only would that be presumptuous, but uh, I, I try to avoid the the whole thing about the best, you know, it's, I, I use it like I would say favorites or something like that. But in this case, my goal was just, just to list, you know, what someone new to the channel would, would start with, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about your process of choosing this. And, you know, I did see when you first posted this, uh, someone said, well, this doesn't seem like it's the best films on the channel. And <laughs> yeah. you said, well, no, this isn't the best films on the channel. This is a, a beginner's guide for the the Criterion Channel's permanent library. I had very strict criteria. Can you walk me through a little bit of the the process that you went through in making some of those decisions and and how did you choose what films you would include and how did you whittle it down to a hundred? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a daunting yeah. process, right? Oh yes. Uh, I first started with going through all of my five star films on letterbox that are actually on the channel. And these okay. days it's easy to know which streaming service are carrying channels because, uh, Letterbox has partnered with Just Watch, and so you can see which films. You can go to a film's page and know, you know, that it's on different streaming services. In this case, I chose Criterion Channel, and I, I kind of then I filtered it down to films that I had given five stars to. Now that sounds like yeah, I'm choosing my favorite films, you know. So, but that was the beginning because I, you know, when you consider how few films I've given five stars to, you can see that that I still had to fill it out with other films. And there were there was one four and a half star film that I I was torn about. I can't remember which one it was now, but I said I needed another film to 
better represent the channel, so I dropped it. Uh, the list itself, I, I list chronologically, and, and I normally do that with almost all the films, all the lists that I make on Letterboxd, because, you know, putting it in a um, a ranking, first of all, it's it's very hard for me to rank films. You know, I can't, I can't judge a Francois Truffaut film, you know, next to a, you know, a Lino Braca film. You know, it's just, yeah. that, that's just, it, it's, it's very hard for me. You know, I, I find virtue, you know, in, in, so many different works that that comparing them sometimes is just a a losing game, you know, <laughs> uh, or ranking them. Mm-hmm. I started with the kid, which was you know one of my favorite Chaplin films, and so I started with some of the uh, silent films, and then you know, and from there, I and again, I uh, there was some films there that I I felt like maybe I, I put too many Japanese films, but my goodness, the the 50s, you know, was the height of. Japanese films. You had Mizuguchi and Kurosawa and and Ozu. So yeah, I mean, I just had to have some, uh, you know, a, a good sampling of each of those of those filmmakers. Mm. And then uh, the French New Wave of the '60s, and I got a few Czech films in there. So, some of them, uh, and some of these films aren't even released physically in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. And so I just wanted I wanted that to be part of it too. I wanted people to realize that a film can be in their permanent library and not be available on disc. Yeah, and I did, you know, we've we talk a lot about the the permanent streaming library and how yeah. there is that divide between the the titles that have been released on disc and the titles that are only streaming and uh you know, it's it's interesting to see how you have chosen to include both mm-hmm. physical releases and non-physical releases in this list. You have the mirror uh, oh you yeah, have the, the Panahi film. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you have but, a few films that have not been released, and you know, so it's a, it's a really, I think it's an interesting attempt to sample kind of some of those yeah. those different approaches. Yeah, yeah, like Mike Lee's film um, at the time. I think I think of this list: Secrets and Lies was a streaming only title, and now now it's been released. But that's a great example of of uh, British films in the in the nineties. Just, just like then, I chose something like to get you know more representation of gay films. I sh- I showed the the Davis. I chose the Davis film, The Long Day Closes, mm-hmm. another you know British film of the '90s. Then of course there's the kitchens, the kitchen sink films, you know from the, from yeah. the British. You know. But and then Russian films like and a couple from uh, of course. From Tarkovsky and and maybe maybe I should have limited it to like one person one film per director you know yeah but but in some cases that was very difficult you know <laughs> yeah yeah definitely especially with you know limiting yourself to one hundred films is yeah. uh, it's a challenge yeah. yeah yeah well I've got I got two films I was I was trying to get uh, more recent films but two of them two two of them wound up to be one car Y films so yeah uh, that was uh, in the move for love and Chunking Express, you know, yeah. and I think the latest film on the list is Boyhood, which is mm-hmm. you know the Richard Linklater film. Yeah, and you know, as, as with any of these films, right, they're all subjective, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about what are the the things that resonate with you as the list yeah. maker, right? Right, and then some persons were questioning why I would include. Uh, Paris is burning in times of Harvey Milk. I say, my goodness, I mean, you can question those as, as you know that was like one of the two or three documentaries on the list, along with uh, The Thin Blue Line. But I, I, not only did I I tick two boxes, and I'm not trying to say there's a quota, but I ticked two boxes with those two films. They're both documentaries 
which is you know pretty small percentage of Criterion releases, but they're also you know from gay filmmakers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as we you know as we look at this list, and we'll include the list in the show notes because I think there's some great a great place to to start if you haven't been really digging into the channel and uh, you're you're wanting a place to to maybe go a little deeper than the the new releases and the expiring titles and you want to to really know what the criterion channel is actually all about why don't we we talk a little bit about uh, a, a recommendation from this channel and and uh, give a recommendation each uh, okay so yeah michael what what would what would you recommend uh, out of this list of titles, what would be one film that you would have people jump into? That would be Kenji Mizuguchi's uh, Sensho the Bailiff from 1954. Mm. It was one of the first films I watched from that director. It may be, maybe actually being this the first film of his that I had seen. I saw it at a retrospective at the High Museum somewhere in the 90s. And then just soon after that, I Criterion released it on Laserdisc, I think in 1994. So of course I jumped on that and have, uh, and it's always been one of my favorite films ever you know ever mm-hmm. since I saw it more than 25 years now, it's just a gorgeous film you know not only does it show off his concerns you know Mizuguchi as far as uh, the themes of his work but it's just a wonderful visual experience and it's it's a heartwarming heart breaking film you know mm-hmm. it really touches you in, in places and and you would figure you know b- being younger when I was watching it certain films you know especially from other cultures, you, you have to see, you know, how does, how do, how do they relate to, to grief or to, or to, uh, you know, war. And then you, you learn that, you know, we're all human regardless of our, uh, of our culture, you know? And so in this case, I, uh, highly recommend this film. It's, it was, it's based on, uh, early feudal period in Japan, probably, you know, 1100s, 1200s. I'm not sure the exact period, but uh, it has this great storyline about this father who teaches their, their, his children using this uh, phrase, without mercy, man is like a beast. And that's really the theme of the story. And it's about him being separated from his family and then all of the strife and heartache that they have to go through in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, that's, that tends to be Mizuguchi's themes. Yeah. But but that would be the one film I would uh, if someone wanted to you know go to his work that would be the first film I would recommend. Yeah, because it yeah, leads it, you to others of his work. You know, it's it's like, it like it's it's almost like a gateway for me. It was for me, so that's the only way I can I can see it as a gate as as a gateway. Yeah, it's a gorgeous film. I saw yeah. the the restoration of it uh, a few years ago at mm-hmm. the Seattle Film Festival, wow. and uh, it was stunning. And it's it's such a moving film, and yeah, I think it's it's really it's an incredible work. Yeah, I can't yeah. cannot recommend that one highly enough. It was one of those films that was a Janus film throughout the whole period, and when they were releasing DVDs. But it took him till 386 to actually release uh, this film, and I and I waited for it for that many years. You know, <laughs> I did have the laserdisc, of course, but uh, it wasn't released until 2007. You know, almost a decade after Criterion went into DVDs, and then it was took another five or six years before it was released on Blu-ray. If it goes to UHD, it'll be my fourth version of the film. You know, so <laughs> so of course I'll get it. Yeah, I as I was looking through this list and looking through the films that I would recommend, there's a lot of really incredible films here that are just they're they're fantastic. I'm gonna actually go uh, with Cleo from Five to Seven. 
great choice. Um, I, I think that's another one of those entry point films that is just it's a magnificent work from uh Anya Svarda and you know it's it's an early new wave film right. and I just I think it is it's a masterpiece right yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it ticks all the boxes too as far as representing certain areas like you know female directors yeah uh, the, the, the new wave um the performances and 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 everything yeah and you know it is a i i think that for people who are wanting to understand the criterion collection and wanting to get into what are some of those films on the channel that go beyond the weekly the monthly new releases and expiring titles this is a great way to kind of broaden those horizons a little bit more um i i think that cleo from five to seven you know if you haven't dug into anya sparta's work i think cleo is a great entry point it's one of those films that takes you from the films of truffaut and the early godards and i think it is a uh, it's a a really beautiful work it all takes place in the course of one day it's the story of a young woman who is waiting to hear the results of a medical test that will let her know whether or not she has cancer it almost happens in real time and so it's got all of these formal experiments it very much like films like elevator to the gallows another early almost new wave film uh, there's a lot of kind of ex- explorations of the city explorations of paris uh, there's a lot of the wrestling with mortality wrestling with the, the nature of existence it is a it's a really really lovely lovely film that mm. i think I'm I'm really glad that Criterion released that box set of uh, Anya Svarta films because I think that for a long time, while there's a lot of love for Anya Svarta, I think that her work was often overlooked in comparison to some of the the Godards, the Truffauts, some right. of the other the other men involved in the new wave, and I think that her work is really stellar and especially in the the ways that she would experiment and play with form and play with style the other film that i was thinking about talking about was john dealman which i think is a little more even more experimental but i think that a lot of the women working in cinema at that time were were breaking form they were Mm -hmm. taking cinematic traditions and were doing new things with them at the time and uh anjas farda was doing some really incredible things with it here even oh yeah uh, from five to seven well in in her case i think people have only recently realized that her film her debut film the point court was it was practically the first new wave film way mm-hmm. way before godard and Truffaut. and yep. uh, so it that's that's just uh that shows that that people are rightfully re-eva- reevaluating her 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 career her her life work yeah and so I, I again i think that this is a this is a great a great entry point and mm-hmm a great way to dig into the the collection if you have not yet done so so uh yeah i think these are two 
really great entry points. And I think that these are, you know, when we think about uh, art house cinema, the, mm. the films that, that really launched Janus films and launched the Criterion collection, it was French cinema and it was Japanese cinema. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think these are two filmmakers who, um, who did some really, really important work. And uh, I think that this is, this is some good, these are some good films for us to, to recommend people check out. Yeah. But, but thank you, Josh. Thanks for asking me to speak about it. I yeah. think it's, it works. I'll put it that way. And and thanks yeah. to Matthew. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'll, I'll put a link to Matt's how do I criterion list as well. Cause I think okay, that's great. another really, he, he has a lot of really invaluable uh, lists as well. Uh, oh, yeah. That whole but, series of lists that, that I think he links on each one. Uh, so yeah, that that's a good recommendation as well. Yeah. Well, Michael, as we're wrapping things up here, is there a film on another streaming service that you think does a good job of representing what that service offers and what that service uh, kind of gives you? I'm going to have to cheat a little bit because yeah. I kind of misread what you were asking for oh, in this no, particular okay. category. But then, <laughs> then I said, well, maybe the film I chose doesn't represent the streaming service, in this case Hulu. But it it shows that that there are films on Hulu beyond what you would think of the you know the blockbuster films or or the standard studio films that you would think of Hulu as as presenting. In this case, it's it's a foreign language film, and that's Quovadis Aida, uh, and it's now playing on Hulu. I mm -hmm. think you saw it earlier at one of the film festivals, correct? Um, uh, I, or the virtual film festival? Yeah, I saw yeah. it. I I uh, rented it from. Neons. They were doing a okay. little uh, an uh, an early screening of it during award season, yeah. and and I honestly think I think you're right though, Michael, because I do think that this uh, with Neons deal with Hulu, their streaming deal with Hulu, I think that that gives you know it shows though that Hulu has these these great little pockets of art house and foreign programming that people don't think of. And I think that that's a great, a great part of that service that people often overlook. Right. Well, great. I'm glad I'm, I was being able to uh, present the other side of Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But, that's right. But this film was uh, by a female director named Jasmila Zabanek, I believe. It premiered at the 2020 Venice Film Festival about a year ago this month, I believe, and it made its U.S. premiere in March of this year. So I'm considering it a 2021 film, and it's my number one film of the year. So just mm. put it that way, how much I, I really love this film. It's uh, emotional, it's heartbreaking, but it, but there's a reality to it that you just you just can't get past. In this case, the story takes place in 1995 in the small town, relatively small town of um, Srebrenica, We've heard stories about it later, but at the time, it was it was just one of those horror stories that people they don't think it happens in modern warfare. But but what this what this shows is that you know warfare and its effects on on civilians has really not changed and it's still going on today. You know it's been happening thousands of years, but it's basically the story of a UN translator, someone who speaks English, of course, and and can translate between the Serbians and the I think in this case. Were they Norwegian or Danish? That particular group of the UN that was that was stationed in this town, and uh, it shows her trying to save her family, um, which was her husband and two adult sons, and and it's just a a wonderful story. And I, and if you got Hulu, jump on it. 
Yeah, I think this is a, a really magnificent film that is, it's a, it's a gut punch. It is mm. tense. It is, uh, it's, it's an incredible, incredible film that uh, I think, I think not enough people are talking about. Right. Um, yeah. There's incredible. a certain scene um, that will remind you of Come and See. Those mm-hmm. who have seen that film know the scene about the barn, but yeah. from but from here, there's there's a similar situation arises, and it's it's just as gut punching as you say. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an incredible, incredible film. Yeah. I this is a great recommendation, and yeah, I think it's it's incredible. Yeah. I am going to recommend uh, Downstream to Kinshasa. This is streaming on Ovid. This is a film uh, from this year. It was released in kind of digital theaters and in theaters this year. It is now uh, on Ovid. It's directed by Diju Hamida. He is a filmmaker from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's somebody who I think is just one of the great chroniclers of the Democratic Republic of Congo of life there. Seeing a couple of his films, one of the recent ones I saw was National Diploma, which is about the exams that students take there and about uh, just the the pressures it, mm-hmm. it that that students face and the ways that uh, students and parents are often having to bribe teachers to get good education because your entire future rests on whether or not you can pass these exams. And this film is about the the survivors of what's called the Six-Day War, in which residents of the small village were caught between in the crossfire between uh, warring factions of uh, neighboring countries. And many of them were left disabled and they are waiting for reparations from these other countries. And the leaders of their own government have not gotten the reparations that they have been ordered to, to get from these other countries. And so these survivors who are some of them missing limbs, some of them are uh, disabled in different ways. They make this long journey to the capital to protest and to to stage uh, protests uh, in front of the capital and uh, about the resistance that they meet. It's really moving. It's really powerful. It's a really, really incredible film. And again, I think that uh, Diju Hamida is one of the, the great verite documentarians of the African continent. And I really, I'm, I'm eager to see what he continues to do uh, as he continues to make films. I think his stuff is really incredible. That's great. I'm not familiar with him or his work, but you make me really um, want to see it. I know that, um, well, in both our cases, they're both like have the effect of war on mm-hmm. civilians. And in this case, a documentary in mine, a, a kind of a a fictional documentary in that, in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I've really appreciated about Ovid is that they have really done a good job of trying to get great really, really interesting documentaries from around the world and documentarians with really singular voices. Um, Mm -hmm. I think something that 
I get really uh, tired of seeing it are a lot of the talking head documentaries yeah. that are all about getting everybody to stop using social media or to, <laughs> you know, you know, all, yeah. of, all of the, the, the yeah, easy, easy subjects around. filmed easily, you know? Yeah. More, yeah. yeah. We're going to show some infographics. We're going to make a bunch of money because this is going to illuminate a subject that everybody cares about. And by watching it, you feel like you've done something. Whereas, you know, this documentary here is, is, is really powerful and it leaves you uncomfortable. Um, well, those I documentaries you speak of seem to all populate Netflix. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Netflix is, is a, a prime candidate for those types yeah. of documentaries. I mean, you've got all that money. You got to throw it away to somehow. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's what, not that there aren't, it, yeah. it's not that there aren't, isn't value in getting some education about some of those issues. Yeah. But I, I think that, that um, it's not, it's not the same as a really well-crafted documentary like this. That's going to stand the test of time. And I think Ovid, while they've got some great, foreign films and they've got some great narrative features i think they are a home for some really incredible documentary filmmaking uh, that downstream from kinshasa is just one of the latest examples of that i'll have to check out Ovid. i know it's it's a fairly recent service maybe a year or two ago a yeah. year or two old and up it's up there with with me deciding about to get back on movie but right now my play is full but 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 the more you speak of it the more i, I really need to check it out you know, I, I think that there are going to be some of those services that uh, I recommend people kind of maybe even cycle through, right? Yeah. Do those, you know, yeah, subscribe do for that. a couple yeah. months and, yeah. uh, you know, do those, watch some of the films that are going to be really, really meaningful to you. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, Michael, thank you again for joining me today. I always love getting the opportunity to talk to you. It's always a pleasure. This has been a, a great experiment in seeing how the new format works. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And it works very well, you know, from, from, from this, this point of view. Yeah. <laughs> from the guest perspective. That's good. That's good. Maybe I'm well, a little biased. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but I had a great time. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Josh. And, and thanks. Thanks for, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to dig this new format. I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, you speak with other guests using it. Yeah, I think being for us being able to to actually have some more substantial conversations about the films, I think is going to be maybe a little more, a little better. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, well, Michael, where can people find you online? I am in uh, several Facebook groups, um, most notably the Criterion Channel Club group, and also Criterion Now. And you'll find a lot of my lists. Well, you'll find all of my lists <laughs> that are on Letterbox. All of my letterbox lists are on letterbox. Can you believe that? Okay, <laughs> but no, no, it's uh, I, I, I'm you know I'm biased again because uh, I think there's some pretty good lists. So yeah, That's check great. them out. That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website CinemaCocktail.com, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. 
You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest Naya film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to thank this month's new Patreon supporter, Matt Miller. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. I'd like to continue to thank our regular supporters. It really does mean so much that you continue to support the show month in and month out. Thank you. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, my guest and I will sit down to discuss horror films on the channel. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.